invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. As you recall, last week in Luke's gospel, we saw that Jesus, as he's beginning his earthly ministry, was in his hometown of Nazareth and was teaching on, at the synagogue, the synagogue he grew up going to week in and week out. And he was reading from the prophet Isaiah and said that he is the fulfillment of this, this word that was spoken 700 years beforehand. His own people, the Nazarenes, drove him out from his own town. And now we see he's in Capernaum, teaching in the synagogue there, also on the Sabbath day. So I invite you to turn your attention now to God's holy word, Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. Hear now the word of the Lord. And he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. He arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! And he rebuked them, would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write his word upon our hearts this evening. Well, words, particularly spoken words with authority, have a way of capturing the imagination of people. Throughout history, movements, revolutions, and change have been brought about through this medium of the spoken word. No doubt, 
I'm sure you can think of examples from history's recent past. For example, figures such as Winston Churchill or Martin Luther King Jr., who began much change and produced much change through the spoken word. Or you can think of nightmarish examples, individuals such as Adolf Hitler, whose movement was largely sparked and fueled through the spoken word. One example from church history, which I think illustrates this nicely, comes from the, the great revivalist preacher George Whitfield, and he was an 18th century preacher who would uh, preach on both sides of the Atlantic. He was an itinerant preacher, meaning he would go from place to place. He didn't have a, a steady congregation or church. And he was friends with Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin F Franklin recorded a, a story in his autobiography and said that one time Whitfield was coming to where he was staying and he was going to put on a big revival meeting and preach. And Whitfield would preach to crowds of 30,000 people. It was quite extraordinary, with no amplification or microphone, obviously. And Franklin notes in his autobiography that he told himself beforehand that he would not give a dime to the offering basket when it came around. He would not be manipulated by mere words. He then goes on to note that by the time Whitfield was done preaching, his pockets were empty. The power of the spoken word. Well, this evening we come across another authoritative word, but this word comes from the mouth of someone much, much greater than any of these examples from history. This word comes from the mouth of Jesus himself, the Son of God. In fact, as I mentioned before we read this text, we were introduced to this authoritative word already last week as Jesus stands up in the synagogue and says, today, this prophecy from Isaiah, which was written 700 years prior, has been fulfilled in your midst. This authoritative word, this theme of the authoritative word continues in our passage as Jesus enters the synagogue in Capernaum. In fact, if you look at verse 32 of our passage, we read that the people were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. This same uh, sentiment is repeated in verse 36, and Luke uses the same words in the original language. Therefore, we see that Luke is wanting to draw our attention in this passage to the authoritative word of Christ. You may ask, well, what is it about this authoritative word that makes it so authoritative? Well, it's because of who Jesus is. This is the Son of God, or as the demon in our passage will rightly confess, this is the Holy One of God. This evening, I want us to consider then this, this theme, this idea of the authoritative word of Jesus. And we'll do so by considering three points. We will examine Jesus' authoritative word over the spiritual forces of evil. Jesus' authoritative word over death. And lastly, the content of Jesus' authoritative word. Jesus' authoritative word over the spiritual forces of evil, over death, and the content of this word. So 
first, Jesus' authoritative word over spiritual forces of evil. And we see this from our text in verses 31 through 37. In this section, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath in Capernaum. And there's a spirit of an unclean demon, like, likely an immoral demon, you could say, who is in a man and cries out, interrupts Jesus as he's teaching in the synagogue. Now, boys and girls, this would have been quite the spectacle, quite the scene. Synagogue worship services were very similar to our church worship services. They would read prayers, they confess their a creed, they would read scripture, they would hear teaching on scripture. So Jesus is in the synagogue preaching, he's delivering his teaching on a passage in the Old Testament, and someone in the audience has this unclean demon that cries out, interrupts Jesus in the middle of his teaching. This would have been quite the scene. In fact, notice what the demon says. He says, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon was able to do what the Nazarenes weren't able to do, confess the true identity of the Son of God. As James himself says in his epistle that even the demons believe, yet they shudder. It's important to step back for a moment and realize what's going on in the broader, broader structure of Scripture. Most, almost all of the demon possession, possessions that we read about in the Bible occur in the Gospels during the earthly ministry of Christ. And this tells us that there's a great battle being waged between Christ and the devil, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. In fact, we saw this just a few passages ago as Jesus in his baptism receives a spirit and the spirit drives him out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Furthermore, do you remember what and where the first proclamation of the gospel is in Scripture? Boys and girls, the first proclamation of the gospel. Well, it comes in Genesis chapter 3. The third chapter of the Bible, God preaches the gospel as he's cursing the serpent and says that the seed of the woman will one day crush your head. Notice the imagery that God is using to proclaim that gospel message. It's one of battle. Christ will conquest over the kingdom of Satan and darkness. And thus we see that going on here in our passage. There's a great battle being waged between Christ and the devil. In verse 35, again, this demon's interrupting Jesus. And I would imagine everyone who's there in that synagogue, their eyes directly go to Christ, Jesus. What is he going to do? In verse 35, we read that Jesus rebukes 
this demon. He says but a word, and a demon comes out. And this word that Luke uses in the original language that's translated in verse 35, rebuke, is used a number of times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when we consider those instances, it helps illuminate the meaning of what Luke is bringing out here as he chooses this word in particular to use. So for instance, in Psalm 105, this word is used to indicate or to desc- that the psalmist is recounting the Exodus event and says that God rebuked the Red Sea and it stood up in two. God spoke but a word and the sea obeyed his voice. In Psalm chapter, or Psalm 9, the same word is used for God rebuking the nations, the nations scattering in his presence. Therefore, in this same vein, Jesus rebukes the demon, and the demon immediately flees. Now, I would imagine that those of us here have not experienced anything close to what has, uh, what's going on here in our text in Luke chapter 4. But that's not to say that spiritual forces of evil aren't still at work. Indeed, they very much are. Don't be mistaken, we are in a spiritual battle. The New Testament is very adamant about that reality. We've been seeing this in Galatians 5 and 6. If we consider the temptations of this life from a spiritual dimension, there's a great battle being waged. The flesh and the spirit. In fact, Scripture tells us that there's three great enemies that we combat. The devil, the world, and the flesh. The flesh being our sinful nature. As we consider those three enemies, sometimes it's hard to decipher, well, what's the work of the devil compared to the work of our sinful nature compared to the work of the world? It's hard sometimes to to parse all of that. And the reason is, is because they're all working together. One author has described the way in which these enemies work against us as like three three strands in in a rope that are interwoven and working together. So when temptation comes your way, it's likely the result of all three of them working in tandem. Now listen to Paul's words. Listen to Paul's words in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He says that on the cross, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, battle imagery. At the cross, Christ has triumphed over the kingdom of Satan, the spiritual forces of evil. He's crushed the head of the serpent. So when you put yourself under this authoritative word of Christ, when you embrace the gospel message, you are then transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. You no longer are under the power 
of the devil or his hosts. Boys and girls, this is exactly what we confess in the first question and answer of our catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And you'll see about halfway through, the answer will say that Christ, through his sacrifice, has redeemed us from all of the tyranny, or you could say power, of the devil. This is one of the great blessings that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. This is good news. But we still live in the wilderness. We're still not yet in our homeland. And, and because of this, even though we've been transferred from one kingdom to another, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of God, even though we're, the, the devil has no true power over us and that he can't snatch us from our Father's hand, yet they still are seeking to tempt us. And one way in which we fight this temptation is by continuing to submit ourselves to God. And this is what James says in James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Context of our passage, one way in which we submit to God is by submitting to his authoritative word. We submit ourselves to the gospel continue to come under that word. Just as a last thing, I would imagine the last thing this demon wanted to hear was the rebuke of Christ. He knew he stood no chance to the word of God. In a very similar way, the last thing that the devil wants you to hear, and the last thing the devil wants to hear in your own, in your own temptation, is the authoritative word of Christ. The gospel message. So, brothers and sisters, are you submitting yourselves to this word? Are you bringing yourself under the authoritative word of Christ? Are you bringing your family under this authoritative word of Christ? As it's preached on the Lord's Day, as it's read in private, or in your home as a family. Remember, how did Christ combat? the temptation and attacks of the devil, the word of God. And so do we. So Jesus' authoritative word triumphs over the spiritual force of evil. We also see that that Jesus' authoritative word triumphs over death. It triumphs over death. So this leads us to my second point. As we move on in this narrative, in verses 38 through 39, we see that Jesus after this event, leaves the synagogue and he goes to Simon's house. And this, this person, Simon, is the same person as Peter, the one who will be called as a disciple of, of Christ. So Simon Peter. We read in this text that Simon Peter's mother-in-law is quite severely sick with a high fever. And those in the house have likely called Christ and are urging him to heal Simon Peter's mother-in-law. In verse 39, then, we read that Jesus stood over her, that is, the mother-in-law, Simon's mother-in-law, and rebuked the fever, and it left her. This word is the same word that Luke has just got done using a few verses ago. 
to show how Christ rebukes the demon, and it flees. And now we see that Jesus rebukes the fever, and immediately the fever leaves. Just as the word of God has the power to command the sea, the nations, the spiritual forces of evil, so too we see here that the word of God, the authoritative word of God, has the power over illness, disease, and death. Now, of course, Simon's mother-in-law, after she got Uh, after she was healed, no doubt grew ill again, may have gotten some other disease or ailment, and then died. Jesus in this moment was not eradicating disease and death. Rather, this event is foreshadowing to a much greater event. What event do you think that, that would be? It's a resurrection. Here, we see Jesus rebukes this high fever, this illness, illness which leads to death. At the resurrection, Jesus rebukes death itself. This event is foreshadowing what he's going to do as he triumphs over death, the effects of the fall, as he rises again on the third day. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of Christ is good news to us because what happens to Christ happens to us. That's the meaning of Christ's resurrection being the first fruits. One way to think about it is like that of a train. When you see a train pass by your vehicle, you know that if the front car passes your vehicle, the caboose eventually will also pass your vehicle. Therefore, what happens to Christ will one day happen to us. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. So when we're in Christ, we're trusting in Christ, we too triumph over death in Him. We have the sure hope, not a wishful expectation, but a sure hope of a new heavens and a new earth when death, illness, sickness, Every effect of the fall and that first curse will be eradicated. Now, as I seek to apply this to what we've gone through this past year, what everyone's gone through this past year with uh, COVID and everything that's ensued because of that, I think one reason why this has terrified our society and world in general is because it's reminded us that we do not have the power to rebuke death. Illness, disease, the effects of the fall completely. You know, in our day and age, as we continue to develop technologically year by year, uh, decade by decade, generation by generation, what happens is that the authority of the natural world becomes less and less. We become disillusioned into thinking that we have this power, this power to over death, over nature. For instance, if you think 500 years ago, the authority of the natural world would have been very, very clear to every single member of society. 
For instance, if you think of farming, which would have been a, a widespread occupation in that time, farmers knew that the authority of, they were subjected to the authority of the natural world. With the advent of agricultural technology, of GMO crops and fertilization and irrigation, the authority of the natural world becomes less and less. Think of geographical space. It's been very recent, historically speaking, to be able to hop, a, hop on an airplane and travel across the country and even across the world in a matter of hours. Indeed, I would, I, would, I would imagine many of our forefathers who immigrated to this country did so knowing that they may never see family ever again. Geographical space was a legitimate authority. We see it with modern medicine, which has uh, eradicated or uh, strongly combated many, many illnesses that would have been death sentences in ages ago and now are easily treated. You think of even the authority our society is trying to exercise over human nature with the advent of gene editing or uh, sex reassignment surgery. In our day and age, uh, the, the, uh, the authority of the natural world has definitely diminished from ages in the past. I'm not saying at all that this technology is bad. I mean, some of it, I think, needs to be thought through a lot, and some is troubling. But much of this is very good, and I think is one of the great blessings of living in the day and age in which we live. But I think there's a sort of analogy in how our society views this technology and the Tower of Babel, which we read about in Genesis 11, whereby society seeks to usurp God and become a God unto themselves. And therefore, I think this past year has reminded us, collectively, that we are mere creatures with authorities that exist outside of ourselves. And the person in our text this evening, the person of the Son of God, is the only one who's walked this earth who could rebuke death in its face. And this, beloved in the Lord, is the good news that we need to be reminded of and the good news that our world needs to be reminded of. That in Christ, we have blessed immortality. And yes, we will still physically die. And that's still a curse. But we have the good news of knowing that death gives way to victory. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, death will be swallowed up in victory. Death is merely now the gateway to new heavens, the new earth, to new creation, to blessed immortality. So we see here Jesus' authoritative word triumphing over death itself. Lastly, I'd like us to spend a few moments considering the content of this authoritative word which Luke brings out for us in, in this passage. Thus far, we've considered how Jesus has rebuked demons. He goes on to rebuke uh, many more demons than the first one he encountered. He has also rebuked fevers. The question I'd like to ask now under this final point is, what is the message that unites these utterances? As Jesus rebukes illness, Jesus rebukes demons. What unites this word? Well, verses 42 and 43 tell us. And here we see that Jesus had pulled an all-nighter. Boys and girls, he was up all night rebuking demons, 
healing individuals who were ill. And when Don approached, he was tired. He was looking for a quiet place, a place to be by himself. But the people of Capernaum let no such thing happen. They followed him, and they were trying to convince him to stay. Don't leave us. They wanted more of what Jesus had been doing. Jesus responds in verse 42, and he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. He needs to move on. How has the kingdom of God been described in our passage? This, this theme of the kingdom of God is a huge, huge theme in the book of Luke, and something that we will no doubt return to as we continue our way passage by passage through this gospel. But how has the kingdom of God been described, defined in our passage that we've considered tonight? Well, points one and points two define it for us. The kingdom of God triumphs over the spiritual forces of evil. The kingdom of God triumphs over death itself. And when we belong to this kingdom, we then, in Christ, triumph over these forces as well. And as such, we can confidently say with the Apostle Paul, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The kingdom of God is a kingdom in which the spiritual forces of evil have no legitimate authority and death will not have the final say. Jesus continues in verse 42 as he says, I was sent for this very purpose, to announce the good news of the kingdom of God. And where do you think, brothers and sisters, this kingdom is manifested in our age? In moments like this, the church, the gathered church, the local church, those who belong, yes, in one sense, to this world, but who have a greater citizenship in the world to come. And Jesus' mission, his mission was to announce this good news, Nazareth, Capernaum, and other, other regions in Judea. That is, he came to announce this to the Jews. Who was going to announce this to the Gentiles, though? Many, many more people than just Jews. We get to the end of Matthew 28, and we find out. Jesus is about to ascend to his Father in heaven. He commissions his disciples to go forth and continue this mission, to announce the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. We get to the end of Acts, and Paul is in Rome, the end of the known world at that time. And we... As we are seeking to see a church established here in Gig Harbor, stand in this tradition of continuing this mission of preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth, the good news of the kingdom of God that rebukes the spiritual forces of evil and death itself. So, beloved, do you believe that this authoritative word this authoritative word of Christ is not merely information. It's not less than that, but it's not merely information. You believe that it's actually the power of God. It's living and active, as the author of the Hebrews says. Like Jesus, 
as he speaks, and his very speaking produces the result. In fact, in Acts, which was also written by the author, by Luke, the author of, of the Gospel of Luke, we read one major theme uniting the whole book is that the word is triumphing, prevailing, and advancing. It's the word that's doing the work. So do you believe that this word is power? It's effective in producing change in our life as we continue to battle our own attacks from the devil, his hosts, and the temptations that follow. Well, no doubt it would have been quite an experience to hear the great speakers of old, such as Churchill, Martin Luther King Jr., or Whitfield speak. But no matter how authoritative, charismatic, compelling their words were, they wouldn't have stood a chance to this authoritative word of Christ as he walked this earth. But the truly astonishing thing is that we have the great blessing of hearing this authoritative word of Christ go forth each and every Lord's Day. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word, and we thank you that Christ has indeed spoken. We know that your prophets spoke in, in past ages, but you have spoken definitively in the Son. We thank you for this great hope that this gives us as we walk through uh, this present evil age as pilgrims. We pray that this would nourish us and give us much motivation as we seek to walk according to your law in all good works. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.